0: Well good evening everybody, thank you for coming along this evening, my name's is Catherine Kelly, I'm from IPAN and AJPP and I just wanted to say a few words before the evening gets underway. First I'd like to acknowledge that we're having this event on the land, on the Aboriginal land of the Ngunnawal people and to pay our respects to the elders past and present. And also, this evening has been organised jointly by the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network and Australians for Justice and Peace in Palestine. IPAN is a fairly new peak organisation of around 50 peace, community, church and union groups around Australia, which is campaigning for an independent foreign policy for Australia and to stop following the US in contributing to conflicts around the world. Australians for Justice and Peace in Palestine is an organisation which started in 2002 in Canberra and has held many forums, films, dinners and rallies to bring to the notice of Australians the grave injustice of the Israeli military occupation of Palestine. We should note that tomorrow is the 70th anniversary of the UN General Assembly vote dividing Palestine to enable the establishment of Israel. I would like to acknowledge also, in addition to our honoured guest, Gideon Levy, the presence of a number of people who are recipients of this year's Nobel Peace Prize. That is, that is the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, ICANN. These wonderful people are Dr Sue Werem who a lot of you probably know who is President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War Australia and Vice President of ICAN Australia. Also, associated, Associate Professor Dr Tillman-Ruff, who's here, Founding Chair of ICAN. And he is one of the drive, key driving forces behind the global campaign right from its very beginnings. And Jen Romold, who is the Outreach Coordinator for ICAN as well. In honouring ICANN, the Norwegian Nobel Committee reaffirmed that prohibiting and eliminating nuclear weapons is the most urgent security priority of our time. In the context of today's event, Israel's possession of nuclear weapons should be of particular concern. ICANN mounted an extraordinary, effective and diverse global campaign that helped secure the UN Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons adopted by 122 UN member states on July 7th this year. The Landmaker Agreement declares nuclear weapons illegal because of their catastrophic consequences and based on the principles of international humanitarian law. I'd like to express our great thanks again to them and for the incredible work they've done and the achievement of the UN Treaty to Prohibit Nuclear Weapons. (laughs) Dr. Wareham will introduce Gideon Levy after the main course. I'd also like to acknowledge the presence of the president of the Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network, Bishop George Browning. We are grateful to the network and to the Australian Friends of Palestine Association in South Australia. Without whose support, Mr Levy would not be here tonight. I also acknowledge staff from the Palestine delegation over here, thank you. And Dr. Kevin Gray and Gwyneth Bay, who are the mainstays of AJPP. And now, please enjoy the meal and we'll hear from our speaker after the main course. Thank you.
1: Hello, we thought um, we would like to keep keep the evening moving. I'm Sue Wareham, and um, I think I have the greatest privilege this evening. Um, in introducing our special uh, guest, Israeli journalist, Gideon Levi, and to welcome Gideon uh, and his wife, uh, Katrine, to Canberra. Just a little about, Thanks. I'm going to mention just a wee bit about Gideon, which some of you will know, but uh, let's remind ourselves anyway. Gideon was uh, born in uh, Tel Aviv, and he's been a journalist since 1974, when he was a reporter for Israeli Army Radio. He worked as an aide to the then leader of the Israeli Labor Party, Shimon Peres, from 1978 to 1982. And since that time, he's been a journalist with newspaper Haaretz. Gideon is one of the strongest voices in Israel about the morally corrupting influence of the occupation, the occupied territories, the Palestinian territories. He's won many awards for his work, including the Emil Grunzweig Human Rights Award in 1996 by the Association for Civil Rights in Israel, He's been awarded the Anna Lind Foundation Journalism Award in 2008 for an article he wrote about Palestinian children killed by Israeli forces. And he's been awarded the Peace Through Media Award in 2012. I personally have read Gideon's articles over many years and greatly admired his work, and I'm sure most of you have also. He's been shot at by the Israeli Defense Force. He's been threatened um, on the streets of his country. And he's faced demands from government ministers that he be tightly monitored as a security risk. Some time ago, his visits to Gaza were banned by Israel. And this is because Gideon has done something very simple and something that very few other Israelis have done. And that is that for nearly uh, nearly every week, for three decades, he traveled to the occupied territories, occupied Palestinian territories, and simply described what he saw, plainly and without any propaganda. And he does this so that nobody can say, we didn't know what was happening to the Palestinian people. And for that, many of his Israeli compatriots want him silenced. So we are extremely privileged and delighted to welcome Gideon Levy to Canberra. He's had a very busy day today, meeting with parliamentarians, um, at least, I guess, those um, whom our prime minister didn't send home for the week. Um, But he's had a very, very busy day today. Um, We'd like to thank uh, the Australia Palestine Advocacy Network and also the Australian Friends of Palestine Association who hosted Gideon in Adelaide recently, where he delivered the 2017 Edward Said Memorial Lecture, which was just three days ago. And uh, HAPP, Australians for Justice and Peace in Palestine, and IPAN, the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network, very much would like to thank Gideon and Katrine for staying on to speak with us this evening. We are deeply honoured by this visit, and I'd like you to welcome Gideon Eby, please.
2: Thank you very much, Sue. You know much too much about me. And I'm not sure that I stand behind everything you say. And you also reminded me of all my sins, like serving the Israeli army and working for Shimon Peres. You said I had a tough day today in the parliament, and you didn't mention the fact that I met today your foreign minister, which was rather a strange meeting, but I am obliged not to share it with the public. <laughs> but I heard things that I wouldn't hear from any right-winger in Israel, uh, which left me really quite uh, astonished, I must say, and she's a charming lady, and I'm very grateful for the time we spent together, and she even gave me two dolls of a kangaroo and I'll carry it with a lot of happiness back to Israel. But I think uh, if I may call you friends, we've got a problem in Australia. We've got a problem in Israel but no less than this, we've got a problem in Australia. I thought I leave Israel, I'll refresh my mind a little bit. And here I met some of the most lovely people I met, but in the same time, I met a lot of outcomes of brainwash, of propaganda, of ignorance, like I'm so used back at at home. And uh, there is a lot to be done to all those good people who brought me here, to the organizations, to the individuals, to our friends, There is a lot to be done here, and a lot to be done in Israel. I guess after this lovely meal and uh, wine, maybe it's enough that we will all agree that we have to put an end to the occupation. I doubt it whether there is anyone here who will object this. And we might even agree about the one-state solution. I doubt whether there are too many people here who object this, and we can go home. But things are a little bit more complicated than this. I'm very, very happy to be here tonight. I really feel among friends. I heard a little bit about some of you, people who fought for principles, people who fought for morality, people who fought for human rights, people who fought against nuclear weapons, people who stood in a very proud way against the grain. And I think that we should never lose hope, even though when it comes to the Middle East, right now things look very hopeless. Standing against the grain has a lot of privileges. And I must remind all of you, and I must remind myself again and again, that so many times in history, minorities were so damn right and majorities, brainwashed majorities were so wrong. In so many times in history those who were called traitors like we do those who were called who were labeled as anti-Semites like part of the you do, those who were called lunatics were found so right in a retrospective of time, and those who went with the mainstream, with the brainwash, with the propaganda, were so wrong. So let's not lose hope, not in your country, not in my country. You are a minority in your country, and we are a minority, a tiny minority in our country, and still we shouldn't live hope, because things can really change. I must remind you that most of the most dramatic things in history happened in the most unexpected way. If I would have come here in the late 80s and I would have told you that within months Soviet Russia is going to fall, the Berlin war is going to fall, and the apartheid system in South Africa is going to fall. Sue, you would have never invited me again because you would have saw that I'm out of my mind. Nobody had foreseen it, nobody. Many times we see a huge, and you have in your country such beautiful trees. Many times we see those huge strong trees look so healthy, so strong, so viable, and all of a sudden a tree falls down on the street. Nobody expects this tree to fall, and then we look inside that tree, and we see it is totally rotten from inside. And what is more rotten than the Israeli occupation, which celebrates now its 50th year, or may I say so, the first 50 years, because today we are far from ending the occupation than ever. I'm very sorry to say so, but I think the end of the occupation is today farer than ever. Ten years ago it seemed more hopeful, and twenty years ago it seemed even more hopeful. And right now we are facing a stage in which part of the world is losing interest, part of the world supports Israel blindly, Israel has no incentive to go for ending the occupation, the Palestinians are divided, are beaten, are lonely, are separated without energy still bleeding from the Second Intifada, without having a proper leadership for the future, with all the respect to Abbas, who is 83 now. And it seems really, really hopeless. But we know from history that many times in those hopeless moments, all of a sudden something unexpected will happen and we will be back on track. The Israeli occupation celebrated now 50 years, and I think at least in this room, with those friends, I don't have to mention the fact that nobody should look at the Israeli occupation as a temporary phenomenon. It is not. It is there to stay. Israel never had an intention, a serious intention to put an end to the occupation. There was not one single Israeli Prime Minister including Nobel Prize winners who really meant to put an end to the occupation. And how do I know it? Very easily. Because there was not a single government who stopped building settlements. And if you build settlements, you don't mean to put an end to the occupation. As simple as this. So there was never a genuine intention to put a final, total end to the occupation. And the world the world played a very interesting role. There's not a single issue today in the world which unites the entire world, from India to Australia, from Australia to Africa, from Europe to America, from the Arab world to Southeast Asia, like the need to put an end to the occupation. There's no single country in the world which recognized the Israeli occupation. Even Micronesia, which is Israel's second friend, doesn't recognize the occupation. There is no single country in the world which supported the occupation ever. And look, look what's happening. On one hand, there is this global consensus like no other issue. Everyone says two-state solution. And on the ground, things are going exactly to the opposite direction. I cannot think about one other example in which there is the entire world and there is one state which violates the at least declared ambition of the world, declared policy of the world to put an end to the occupation and just ignores it. And the question is, can we go on with this masquerade, in which we all pay this lip service of saying, yes, two-state solution, and do nothing. And the Israeli Prime Minister will held a speech once in 10 years, adopting the two-state solution, and then in the coming 10 years, he will do anything possible to sabotage the two-state solution and build more settlements. And the world will just watch it and do nothing. Israel is not yet, maybe, an apartheid state. But Israel possesses two regimes, or maybe three regimes, and one should remember this. On the front, there is this liberal democracy, the only democracy in the Middle East, the country that most of the Australians love so much and share so much the same values, the country that the West is hugging and financing and supporting and arming, the country that came out of the Holocaust. And is really a miraculous phenomenon. But that's just in the front, in the backyard, in the very dark backyard of this very same democracy, There is one of the most brutal tyrannies on earth today, and I'm not exaggerating. The military occupation is one of the most brutal tyrannies on earth today, not less than this. People are kidnapped from their beds in front of their children on a daily basis. People are killed, people are humiliated. People lose their Dignity, lose their jobs, lose their hope on a daily basis for 50 years now. Gaza is the biggest cage on earth. Gaza represents the biggest experiment ever in human beings. Let's see what's happening with two million people if we put them all together in a cage. Let's see what's happening to them. And now we can start to see the results. Society in Gaza is falling apart, a research made by an Israeli psychologist who was in Gaza recently, a Palestinian-Israeli researcher, came back with horrifying conclusions. He told the media that one-third of the children he met and interviewed were victims of sexual harassment, there are no parents to support them, no parents to protect them, everyone is just busy and preoccupied with surviving, living in a cage for 10 years, makes societies fall apart, makes parents and families fall apart. So, Gaza is a cage. The West Bank is in a better condition, but don't be wrong. None of us, none of us in this room can imagine themselves. What does it mean to live under the Israeli occupation, even in the West Bank? None of us knows what does it mean to wake up in the middle of the night and to see 20, 30 Israeli soldiers with dogs in your bedroom, without any reason or with a very doubtful reason. None of us know what does it mean to see our parents beaten in front of us. None of us know what does it mean to go work in the morning and not to know will you make it will you not make it none of us know and can imagine what does it mean to try to stand in the checkpoints to get some kind of work in israel at two o'clock in the morning in order to get at seven o'clock to work which is half an hour away none of us knows what does it mean to live for 50 years third generation now under the Israeli occupation. It changes phases, I'm covering it now for 30 years. I saw worse times than now, I saw better times than now, but it's always an occupation. It always destroys a people. It always, as some Palestinians phrased it nicely, we are stealing their lives for so many years. And most of the Israelis, I must say, the big majority of Israelis, couldn't care less. And it really bothered me for many years. How can can it be? Because the occupation, the Israeli occupation, is not a colony, you know, over the oceans. It's not even Algeria over the Mediterranean. It's just 15 minutes away or half an hour away from our homes. How can it be that there are so little question marks in Israeli society? So little doubts, so little protest? How come that most of the Israelis couldn't care less about what is being done on their behalf? Day after day, week after week, year after year. And it took me some years to understand that the Israeli society is trained not to know, is trained to close its eyes, is trained to be blind to daily crimes which are being taken so close to our homes. Some of you who visited Israel, I guess you were astonished as any foreigner who comes to Israel how little the occupation is discussed at all. Israelis don't talk about it know about it so little are not troubled at all. The occupation is not on the table at all. Campaign after campaign in the elections, huge subjects are being discussed in the campaigns like the cigars that the prime minister is smoking, the champagne that his wife is drinking and the occupation is absent. doesn't exist. The elephant is not in the room. And it took me some years to realize what a machinery it is, what a machinery it takes to make a people live in denial, to make a people live in blindness, total blindness. Most of the Israelis, I may, I allow myself to say here, most of the Israelis know about the occupation less than you know most of the Israelis have not been in those places that part of you who went to the West Bank have been. And the media, the biggest collaborator of Israeli occupation, which is labeled in Israel as a leftist mafia, can you believe it? The Israeli media is hardly covering the occupation, and if it covers the occupation, it's always in a biased way. dehumanising the Palestinians, demonizing them, and not telling the real story. And the real story is much more simple than you think. Because many times people tell me, oh, you oversimplify the story, it is so complex. I'm sure you face those arguments. That it's very complicated. It's very complex. It's not black and white. It is black and white, my friends. There is a very clear occupier and there is a very clear occupied. There is a very clear party which violates international law very clearly. I heard that your foreign minister said some time ago that there is no occupation. I mean, we can claim that today is not your day. But what can we do? Today is Tuesday. There is no argument about it. I mean, there is not more than one version about what day is it today. And there is not more than one version about the fact that the occupied territories are occupied and are violating the international law, period. And if you find some lunatic experts or so-called experts who claim that this is not an occupation, I offer them a mental assistance because there cannot be an argument, exactly like it cannot be an argument if it is Tuesday today. Is it Tuesday today, Katrin? In Israel, it's still Monday and here it's Tuesday. (laughs) But in any case, don't let the majority in this country like the majority in my country Don't let them attack you with the old weapons that they always use, labeling us as self-hating Jews, labeling labeling you as anti-Semites. There is a full, not only right, but duty to criticize the Israeli occupation. Any person of conscience in the world has to raise his voice, not only has the right, has the duty to raise his voice against the occupation. And no labeling us as anti-Semites or anti-Jewish or anti-Israeli should not paralyze us because they are trying to manipulate us. By the end of the day, we have the right to criticize Israel. By the way, you might be an intimate friend of Israel and still criticize Israel. You might care for the future of Israel like I do and still condemn the occupation, still fight against the occupation. Some of us fight against the occupation because of the Palestinian rights and some of us might even fight the occupation because it destroys the society of Israel. Look what's happening within the society of Israel, look the violence, look the anti-democratic legislations of the last years, look at the racism which became politically correct in Israel, look at the nationalism. This is partly a product of the occupation, not all of it. And it took me many years, I must say, to understand how can we Israelis live in peace with all this. So yes, I know most of the Israelis know nothing about the occupation. I want to know nothing about the occupation. I'm amazed again and again about the level of ignorance. How efficient is this, the or system? How efficient is the propaganda? But still, you can't live in Israel and totally not know anything. And Israeli media and Israeli education system and Israeli politicians supplied us with all kinds of shields in order to continue with the occupation. We had once a very efficient advertisement for brass. You go with and you feel without. So we Israelis go with the occupation totally feel without it. So how can it be that it is working so easily? And here I would like to suggest a few explanations. Some of you, like George and others, heard me already, and I'm so sorry to repeat myself, but I have a singer of one song. There is a set of beliefs that Israelis believe in, or we are trained to believe in, which makes it so much easier to live with the occupation, and to feel without it. The first one is, we are the chosen people. We are the chosen people, secular, religious. Almost all of the Israelis, if you stretch under their skin, you will realize that there is some kind of conviction that we know better. We know better than, than the Australians. We know better than the Americans. We know better than anyone else. Because we are the chosen people. If this is not enough, we are also the victims the greatest victims in history. But not only the greatest victims, the only victims in history. And as being the greatest and the only victims in history, we have the right to do whatever we want. Nobody will tell us what to do. As the late Golda Meir, Israeli Prime Minister, phrased it once, after the Holocaust, the Jews have the right to do whatever they want. This is very deep-rooted in Israeli way of thinking. And the third set of beliefs concerns to the Palestinians, I'll be very careful in what I say, but by the end of the day, again, if you scratch under the skin of almost any Israeli leftist or right wing, you'll realize that how will I say, the Palestinians are not exactly human beings like us. They don't love their children like we do love their children, our children. They don't appreciate life like we appreciate life. They were born to kill. They are a little barbaric, let's be frank. They are not educated. The only thing which goes through their minds is how to push the Jews to the ocean, how to kill another Jew. They are not human beings like us. And if they are not human beings like us, What's the whole fuss about human rights? So this whole set of beliefs, together with the one and only religion of Israel, the informal religion, which is worshipping security. Security justifies everything. Security is our religion. And when I say security, and when the world says security, it's always the security of Israel. Have you ever heard an argument for the security of the Palestinians? Have you ever heard someone speaking about the security of the Palestinians? While they are paying so much more price in terms of bloodshed than the Israelis? But security is our religion, and this enables us to do everything, because you know, we are the victims, we are the chosen people, and they are not human beings like us. So on behalf of security, it's okay to launch attacks on Gaza and to kill 400 children and 200 women and still believe that the IDF is the most moral army in the world. Try to tell an Israeli that the IDF, the Israeli army, is the second moral army in the world. They will be so offended. Try to tell an Israeli that maybe the army of Luxembourg is more moral than the Israeli army, occupation army, is the second moral army. How dare you? So the Israelis deeply believe that what the army is doing is moral, that the occupation is here because it was imposed on us, because we don't want this occupation. You know, my friends, there were longer occupations in history and there were even more brutal occupations in history. I cannot recall one occupation in which the occupier presented himself as the, as the victim. We are the victims. The occupation was opposed on us. Or again, as the late Golda Meir phrased it, we will never forgive the Palestinians for forcing us to kill their children. We are killing their children and we are the victims. And those things, I mean, Gordon May said it decades ago, but I'm sure that many, many Israelis still believe that we don't have other other choice but to kill their children. We don't have any other choice. What do you want from us? We are the David and they are the Goliath. We are the weak ones, they are the strong ones. We are the good ones, they are the bad ones. And there is no other way but to kill their children. It's their fault. You hear it again and again. Children, teenagers of 14, 15, are going to the checkpoint, taking out scissors or knives, kitchen knives, just enough to put out the knife in order to be execu- executed. And this is totally justified in Israeli society. And the media will report us that a terrorist of twelve was assassinated was killed this morning while trying to attack the Israeli soldiers. No shame. Terrorist twelve years old, a knife in front of armed soldiers, well protected soldiers who could easily detain those teenagers, who could easily, in a worst case, shoot at their legs but no no we kill them and we justify them and nobody's asking why nobody's asking under which right can we penetrate every given moment to any private home in west in the west bank take someone from his bed without any legal procedure and bring him to detention and many times leaving him him in detention for weeks and months without trial nobody will ask under which right do we come and take children from their homes and detain them and interrogate them against the Israeli law without the presence of the parents, without the presence of lawyers and still believe that all this was imposed on us. This must come to its end. The way seems still very far, but we have to start to do something. Continuing to say two-state solution and do nothing is not a solution. Lip service is not a solution. They don't deserve another 50 years of occupation, and Israel doesn't deserve another 50 years of being can occupied. There is no way that Israeli society will change from within, because there is no incentive. Life in Israel is so good, that some of you who have been to Israel try to get a table in a restaurant in Tel Aviv, try to get to a club, to a bar, packed up, try to listen to what people are talking, what is the discourse, the next vacation, the new jeep, the next party. I still remember times in which two Israelis shared three views. Right now, three Israelis had to share one view and this will always be a very, very nationalistic point of view in which there is no problem. The occupation is not problematic at all. It is there to stay. We have our good lives. Don't expect this to change from within Israel. Israelis have no incentive to do so and Israeli politicians have no incentive to go for a change. This will be suicidal from their point of view. Israel is gaining from the occupation much more than from putting an end to the occupation. Israel is not paying any price for the occupation. Israelis are not paying any price. As long as this will continue, nothing will move. As long as there will be no American president who will really want to put an end to the occupation, nothing will move. Because if there would have been once an American president who would have liked to put an end to the occupation, the occupation would have come to its end within months because of the real Israeli dependence on the United States. But there was never, and there will never be, an American president who will be devoted enough to put an end to the occupation. If it wasn't Obama, it would be no one. So in this situation, which I don't see any hope from changing the Israeli society from within, the only hope is from the world. The only hope is from people like you. The only hope is from civil societies. The only hope is to adopt the way of struggle against apartheid in South Africa. What was relevant there, what was just there, what was efficient there, should be adopted also vis-à-vis the Israeli occupation. And we know very well that the struggle of the ANC in South Africa was really courageous, and Mandela was a giant, but without the international intervention, I'm not sure that apartheid in South Africa would have come to its end. And therefore, we cannot continue and do nothing. The two-state solution, which was the best solution for many, many years, and I guess some of you supported it, maybe all of you supported it, I did support it, but this is a train that left the station. With 700,000 settlers, including East Jerusalem, there is no and there will never be an Israeli politician who will be able to evacuate so many settlers, the strongest political group in Israeli politics, blackmailing one government after the other. So if the two-state solution is irrelevant anymore, which I think we should stop speaking about the two-state solution, because we are playing to the hands of those who want to keep the status quo and to strengthen the occupation. Speaking today about the two-state solution means doing nothing. Because the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, a great peacemaker, declared 10 years ago, 8 years ago, 7 years ago, that he's in favor of the two-state solution. And that's it majority of Israeli public opinion in any poll says they are in favor of the two-state solution. majority of the Palestinians say they are in favor of the two-state solution. The whole world declares that he is in favor of the two-state solution, and nothing is happening, and nothing will happen. And I truly believe, and I wish I will be wrong, that the two-state solution is not relevant anymore. And I'm really open to hear anyone who will convince me that the two-state solution is still an option. I wish it would have been an option. But we have to face it. It's not an option. It's an option to waste more time. It's an option to continue the masquerade. And then we have to ask ourselves, what is the alternative? And the only alternative that I know is to change the discourse and to start to speak about something very basic, something very pure, something very simple, something that should have been taken for granted. Equal rights. What is more simple than this? What is more just than this? If Israel will reject it, as we all know it will, we will have to ask Israel, why not equal rights? And then Israel might say, because we, the Jews, possess rights that the Palestinians don't possess. In this case, Israel will be declared as an apartheid state officially. If Israel will say that the Palestinians don't deserve the same rights like the Jews, Israel is an apartheid state. And if it is an apartheid state, it's about the world to decide if in the 21st century we are living in peace with another apartheid regime. If Israel will say, no, but the whole Zionist project was about having a Jewish state, we should tell Israel, you can't have it all, you want a Jewish state, be my guest. But then you have to pull out from the occupied territory. You can't have it both. You want a Jewish state, and you claim you are a democracy, and you want to maintain the occupation. This doesn't go together. Make up your mind. What do you want? Me, as an Israeli who was brought up in Israel, who never left Israel and had no intention to leave Israel, for me, the the dream of my life is living in a democracy. You don't live in an Australian state, neither do you live in a Christian state, you live in Australia, a democratic state. I want to live in Israel as a democracy. Jewish or not Jewish, I don't know by the way, what does it mean a Jewish state? I never understood it. What does it mean? No buses on Saturdays, this means it's a Jewish state, I'm secular. What does it mean a Jewish state? No gay marriages, this means a Jewish state, so I don't want this kind of state. Not be able to marry my partner who is not Jewish, so I don't want to live in a Jewish state. What does it mean a Jewish state? Those who believe in religion, in God, in Jewishness, should be totally free to do whatever they wish. And we seculars have the right to live our own way. I want to live in a just place, not Jewish and not non-Jewish, not Palestinian and not Israeli or Jewish. I want to live in a just place, and I don't live in a just place. And therefore, we have to change, I think, I suggest here, to change the discourse and to start to talk about equal rights. It is revolutionary, it will take time, it will be maybe very painful, but by the end of the day at least we have a vision. While with was the two-state solution, I at least don't have any vision because I know this will never happen. And, The world should also ask himself for how long will he do nothing about the occupation. Governments are always behind. Your government, other governments, in Europe, in the United States, in the West, in other places. But civil societies can be the game changer. And civil societies can raise their voices and start a process, and many times in history, things which start in a very measured, gradual way, all of a sudden develop into something great. It's not always linear that the changes are gradual. No. Because remember the tree that fell one day and was so, so corrupted from inside and fall by itself without any notice before. So, right now I know that I'm not delivering a very hopeful message. It's very hard to be an optimist right now when everything goes to the wrong direction. But by the end of the day, I must remind you and remind myself that so many things in history happen when it's totally unexpected. Or maybe to remind ourselves an old expression that in the Middle East, one should be realistic enough to believe in miracles. Thank you very much.